If you would please turn now in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 10. It's our custom here to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you would please do that with me now. We do that to set aside the ministry of God's inspired Word for the ministry of His ordained and sent servant. For the grass withers and the flowers outside will fade away. But the word of the living God will endure forever, so God's people strive to hear and heed it faithfully together. Let's do that by His grace this day, as God's word is preached from Ezra 10, verses 1-17. through While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehil, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonanan, the son of Elishab, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month, on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter, and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many. It is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two. For we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Azahel and uh, Jazeah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest elected men, heads of fathers' houses according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. As far the reading of God's word, let's pray for his help. Lord, you know, and I imagine your people sense it as it was just read, that uh, some texts are harder than others. And this is a very hard text. The subject before us is daunting. The task of preaching it is sobering. And so we ask now for the help of the Holy Spirit that you would bless the reading and especially the preaching of your own word, 
that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit receive glory and honor. We praise confidently in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Life is often peppered with difficult decisions, and sometimes we are forced to pick between what appears to be the lesser of two evils. A fireman goes into a burning building and hears voices calling for help from two different directions. What should he do? A soldier guarding a gate in a foreign country sees a child walking toward the gate with a bomb strapped to his chest. What must he do? And the people of God when they realize that they, have create, that they have committed deep and heinous sin, what should they do? Life is often peppered with difficult decisions. Well, the answer, at least one clear answer, is that we, when realizing that we have committed deep and heinous sin, ought to confess our sin and turn to God, even if that appears to be something difficult to do. Uh, we're going to look at today what is arguably the hardest section in the book of Ezra, verses 1 through 17. I was originally going to try to treat the whole chapter at once. It has that uh, fantastically flashy genealogy at the end, but there are too many verses. 44 verses, all of it together would be too much, so we're simply going to deal with these 17 verses, and we'll use the outline that you have to guide us, concerning first Ezra, a man of all seasons, repenting in the rain, and then finally faithfulness in all seasons. So as I mentioned, we come now to the last chapter in the book of Ezra, but not the last sermon. Next week, we will finish the book, God willing, and use the final section, this long and slightly awkward genealogy, as a transition into the book of of Nehemiah. Remember that in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are treated as one book, and so uh, the last chapter of this book flows in many ways into the first chapter of Nehemiah. This first point here, Ezra, a man of all seasons, draws attention fittingly to Ezra. For now, in a certain sense, in this final chapter, we see Ezra's final hour of leadership. But it's not simply his final hour that we give our attention to. It is also his finest hour. You might say it like this, with a bit of poetic contrast, that Ezra's finest hour is staged by Israel's worst. But often that proves to be the case, isn't it? People tend to rise to the occasion. Sometimes the most dire moments in life are the moments that create heroes out of otherwise unsuspected heroes. Ezra steps up when Israel falls down. So the chapter begins with description of Ezra's spiritual leadership. And here we find Ezra doing what any true spiritual leader ought to do, or at least be willing to do. We find Ezra praying and making confession on behalf of the people, even weeping and casting himself down. Those are not fun things to do. None of those are enjoyable body language. In fact, uh, the verbal description here given of Ezra, of his body language, is rather interesting, and in many ways it displays his spiritual leadership. In verse 1, he's casting himself down and weeping bitterly. In verse 3, he's trembling at the word of God because the people have broken the word of God and in some respects the heart of God. But in verse 5, he's not simply cast down, weeping and trembling. In verse 5, Ezra stands up to lead. 
In many ways, his role in this whole book has been fascinating, at least to me, I wonder, if also to you. Uh, We first meet the man Ezra, after whom this book is named, in chapter 7. And there he's introduced, not as a hero, but simply as a scribe. Six chapters of Israel's history, a failed history, precede the introduction of Ezra himself. The point is, against the backdrop of Israel's repeated failure and shallow faith, God sends a man with the word of God, to the people of God. He sent Ezra, a man raised up by God to meet the needs of the people. Ezra, a man who's described in 725 as a man of faith and wisdom who was favored by God, favored by the people, and in this book, even favored by secular kings. And not only is he favored in the sight of God, to the joy of many of you, uh, he's an organized man whom we've seen to be attentive to detail, a passion for detail and well-kept books, orderly reports. But his greatest passion, his unambiguous passion, is for the book of God, the law of the Lord, and his desire to see the people of God keep it. Ezra really has been, throughout this book, a man of all seasons. Ezra the scribe, Ezra the priest, Ezra the preacher. And here, perhaps, we see Ezra in his greatest role. When Ezra sees the people of God committing and indulging great sin or wavering in their faith, he brings the word of God to bear particularly upon the sins and needs of the people. He reminds them not simply of the promise, but even of the presence of God. And it is here, when they fail the most, that Ezra responds the best. And when we fail the most... What is it that we too most need? It's the word of God. And that's exactly the refreshing rain that God sends. But the rain that we see, in a certain sense, is falling in this chapter down the cheek. Ezra's cheeks foremost. Ezra praying. Ezra weeping. Ezra confessing for them over and over and over, almost as though what Israel was unwilling or unable to do for themselves Ezra has taken it upon himself to do for them. It reminds me of a conversation I once had with someone in church who said to me in something of a frail moment, I am too weak to pray right now. Can you please pray for me? That's where Ezra meets the people of God, and I would imagine uh, others in this room have been met there before. This is where we meet Ezra, praying and confessing on behalf of the people at a time when they simply do not know what to do because they have done what they ought not to do. And again, we often find ourselves here, exactly where Ezra is, begging God to show mercy to people who will not ask it for themselves. How many times have you done that? Pleading God's mercy on behalf of people who are not pleading for themselves. Asking God to be gracious to those who seem to show very little regard for God and his grace. Not simply Ezra the scribe. How many parents have confessed the sins of their children over and over? How many elders or deacons meetings have been peppered, not simply with prayers, but even with tears over the sins committed by people and the consequences, the ravaging consequences of people's sins? This here we see a dark but unambiguous lesson that emerges through the book of Ezra. Sin ravages people. Sin ravages lives. It leaves scars 
and it even wrecks families. It forces people into tight corners and into making difficult, if not inappropriate, decisions. But it also can have the effect of forcing people to their knees, into prayer, and ultimately to God. And this is where we find Ezra in chapter 10, in many ways, standing up, if you will, by kneeling down on his knees. Ezra does not simply pray for the people. He even afflicts himself for the people. For in verse 6, he pulls away, he withdraws from the temple and goes to the house of a friend, where there he begins to fast and to continue his mourning, denying himself bread and even water. Why? Because Ezra knows something you and I often forget. Sin is actually a big deal. Sin is actually a big deal to be taken seriously. People often play with sin like children petting lizards or snakes. They look kind of cute and harmless for a moment, maybe even colorful and bright. But in the end, many of them not only bite, they're poisonous. For years, I was a beach lifeguard on the East Coast, and arguably one of the most dangerous creatures along the shoreline is a Portuguese man of war. It's a great name. A Portuguese man of war. I'm not sure what the Portuguese did to deserve it. But a Portuguese man of war is a type of jellyfish, a remarkably beautiful jellyfish. It has many bright colors. In the light, it just shines with blue and purple, and it floats on top of the water like a balloon. And it's very attractive, particularly to kids playing in the water that see this bright, shiny, balloon-looking thing floating slowly across the water. That's actually how it attracts its, its prey. The bright, shiny part at the top attracts things. It literally attracts things like fish. But beneath the water drip feet of long, toxic, barbed tentacles that hang down several feet, spreading out, waiting for prey. When something touches it, the toxins in those tentacles are strong enough to put a person into, this is the longest word I'll say today, anaphylactic shock. And they're particularly threatening to small children. But children, young and old, this is exactly what sin is like. It looks good from a distance. It's bright and shiny, and it even says, come play with me. It looks great at first, but once we touch it, we begin to realize its toxic grip that will not let us go. And treating Portuguese man of war stings was no fun matter for the lifeguard, and especially for small children. So this is where we find Ezra, in a lifeguard type of moment. The people of God perishing in their sin. Fitting. that language here of prayer, confession, weeping, fasting, even mourning... Uh, It's almost as though Ezra is at a funeral. But some things are actually worse than death. And in this case, sin is. For the wages of sin is death. But Ezra's ministry is not without effect. And this leads us to our second point. Repenting in the rain. I'd love to take credit for that fantastic title, but the truth is someone else said it first. But this is where we find Israel on a rainy day. They say leadership is getting people to do what they don't want to do. Harry Truman said that real, effective leadership is not only getting them to do something they don't want to do, but to get them to actually like it while they're doing it. 
Ezra accomplishes the former, but arguably not the latter. A man in our text, a rather obscure uh, name, Shechaniah, in verse 2, here enters the story. He is unmentioned before now, though his name comes up uh, very interestingly later in uh, the genealogy at the end of the chapter, as his dad is apparently one of the men who married a foreign wife. That makes things a little bit awkward, as Shechaniah comes not simply calling out the sins of Israel, but perhaps even ratting on his own dad. Shechaniah comes to Ezra with a strong word. We read it in verses 2 through 4. It's actually pretty important to the text and to our sermon. Shechaniah says, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Now this. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. It's a hard section, isn't it? Surely you have questions that you're wondering if I will answer. Ezra's leadership, if you want to say his preaching ministry, has begun to bore fruit, but the fruit today is not sweet. It is bitter. Shechaniah acknowledges Israel's great sin, that the men of Israel have married foreign wives, but he also acknowledges that there is hope for Israel in God. But it's the next part that bothers me, and it probably bothers you too. Surely you are wondering, how can this be that they are going to send away their wives and their children? I've dreaded preaching this text for a number of weeks, known it was coming, unsure what to do with it, still somewhat wrestling with it. It doesn't simply bother me. It likely bothers you. And I, I will admit that I'm, I'm not fully resolved on a couple points, but hang in there with me. Walk through the text with me. They're not being fully resolved. Uh, <clears throat> I have learned over the short years of life that the best way to deal with a storm is to take it head on. So let's do that. Clearly, <clears throat> Ezra has already, in this book, condemned the Israelites for their intermarriage to foreign women. It is here in chapter 10 that Shechaniah is actually the first to offer the resolve. Notice in chapter 9, Ezra simply offers a prayer of confession for their sin, but he does not offer a practical solution to it. It is Shechaniah who first voices those words that they must put them all away, their foreign wives and the children. Ezra himself will echo this, but not until we get to verse 11. It is Shechaniah who says it's first. In my opinion, again, uh, this is arguably one of the hardest texts in the Bible. I have a book in my library across the hallway that says the 10 hardest sermons you'll ever preach. If you're counting this down, this is my number one at the moment. Why is it so hard? Well, let's state the obvious. First of all, this plan to put away the wives and children, seems to contradict several not only Old Testament verses, but New Testament verses as well. Malachi 3.2, God states emphatically through his prophet that God hates divorce. How can it here be commanded? And what about uh, the simple regard for women and children? What becomes of them when put away? Psalm 68, God is the father of the fatherless and the protector of of orphans and widows, is he here making them? 
Even Nehemiah, the next book, who encounters a similar problem, does not offer this as a resolution to Israel's sin and intermarriage. And then in the New Testament, Jesus himself clearly and outright condemns flippant divorces and says that even divorce itself, were allowed, was always attached to the hardness of heart, either one person or another's. But what about a believer being married to an unbeliever? Paul commands believers in 1 Corinthians to remain married to unbelievers if they will have us. Peter builds on that and goes even further to give instructions for how a Christian married to an ungodly, unbelieving spouse can remain faithful. So neither the New Testament nor the Old Testament prescribe what happens in Ezra 10. And that is pretty significant to recognize. How do we resolve this? Well, again, taking the storm head on. First, let's not miss this. Israel has sinned. And the way that they sinned was violating a direct command that God did give, and we'll hear it now in Deuteronomy 7.3, where God said through Moses, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons. It is interesting that in Ezra 10, it is only sons who have taken foreign daughters. It is not the other way around. The only reference in Ezra 10 is to sons that have married foreign daughters, not Israelite daughters who have married foreign men. No mention of the female Jews marrying foreign men. But why is this an issue? Well, again, and don't miss this, Israel was to be a holy race. But if you were here last week, we hopefully made it very clear that it was not their ethnicity that made them holy, but their relationship with God. But there is something that God knew, and in a certain sense, a point that we won't back away from, and that is that God knows, and he knew especially for Israel at that time, that friendship with the world would lead to enmity with him. You cannot give your heart to both God and the world. So here we have in Ezra 10, godly Hebrew men, or maybe we should just say Hebrew men, I'm sorry, Hebrew men had married foreign wives, but this is not always condemned in the Bible. And not only that, uh, some very godly men in the Bible, as we pointed out last week, actually did marry foreign wives. Joseph married an Egyptian woman, and that seemed to go pretty well. Moses married a black woman from Ethiopia, a Cushite. And when his sister Miriam rebuked him for doing it, God gave her leprosy, almost as though he were saying, kind of chiding her, like, you like being light-skinned? Let's see how light we can make you. And she became a leper. But to the nation of Israel, God said, when you get in the land, stay separate from the people. This was not an ethnic issue. It was a religious issue. This command, note, is not repeated in the New Testament. It expires as with many of the laws of Moses. And what every Christian who knows his Bible well knows, there are a lot of things that the Israelites are told to do or not do, certain commands that do not travel across the threshold from the Old Testament into the New. We're not putting people to death. We're not exercising capital punishment for breaking of certain commandments within the church. I hope we're on the same page there. Right? And this prohibition regarding intermarriage does not travel into the New Testament as well. Two very important 
points emerge that really help us to read our Bible well. One, not everything done in the Old Testament was meant to be done in the New Testament. To say it differently, not everything the Bible describes is something that the Bible also prescribes. And perhaps we should add that when you run run across a hard-to-understand text, something that you might say is unclear, what do we do? We go to the texts that are very clear, and we let the light of the clear help us understand like a flashlight those things which are unclear. just theologically or intellectually, but pastorally. While the Old Testament told Israel, do not marry foreign wives, it never commanded them to divorce them. In other words, it never commended divorce. You cannot go and find a sister verse to Deuteronomy 7.3 that renders some sort of commentary saying, and if you happened to have married a foreign woman, put her away. God did not prescribe this, to my knowledge, anywhere in the law or even in the book of Ezra. Walk with me here. Don't give up yet. Okay, This is the hard part, but hang in there. I didn't say it was going to be easy. That doesn't mean it won't be right. There's nothing in the text that reveals that these divorces were required by God himself. Note very carefully verse 3. The action taken, taken or contemplated flows from an oath taken by Shechaniah, and then Israel takes it with him. It is, in a certain sense, a man-made covenant, not one made by God. It is like an oath where they have sinned, and Shechaniah and the people now offer this resolve. But when you pause and think about it, you've done that a lot of times, haven't you? Gotten yourself in trouble and made some sort of a deal with God. God, if you'll get me out of this pickle, this is what I'm willing to do. And sometimes he said some dumb stuff. And in the Bible, there are men who say some pretty dumb stuff. Samson makes a pretty foolish vow. Jephthah, in the same book, makes arguably one of the most foolish vows. And there again, you read that text and you wonder, scratch your head, what is going on here? And, and even the text doesn't clearly say exactly how the story ends. But there's something else that is at least to me, rather significant. Not only is there no command positively for a divorce to take place from God, not only is this idea introduced by Shechaniah, this man-made covenant. In other words, it is not a covenant that God makes. It is not a command that God says, this is what you must do. It comes uh, from Shechaniah. Okay? But there are two very important words in our text I want to draw your attention to. I'm not trying to nerd out here, but sometimes it is actually worth taking the time to read things in Hebrew. Or just try to, because those distinctions matter. In verse 2, the Hebrew word for married, look at it in your text, is not the normal word for marriage. It is not the normal word for marriage. In fact, the same Hebrew word is sometimes used to refer to people who are living together, whether married or not. So it is possible that these relationships were not normal, sanctioned, typical marriages like you would see in Israel, but rather Jewish men who have taken foreign women and now living with them, something becomes like a common law marriage in which two people living together long enough 
are regarded as husband and wife, described as being married. There's not a commentary I read that doesn't pick up on the difference in these Hebrew words. It at least opens the door to something unusual going on here, but there's another word, the word for put away in verse 3. Look at it. The word for put away in verse 3, what they are going to do, what Shechaniah says they must do, is also not the normal Hebrew word for divorce. Even in your Bibles it says put away. So maybe I'm stretching a bit here, but there is not a direct word from God demanding this action, nor one clearly approving it, and the Hebrew vocabulary is provocative. What types of marriages were these? Did they go down to the local priest with their foreign wife in Persia? Is there putting away divorce in the normal sense? Perhaps not. Either way, without wanting to say more than the text says or less, uh, I find the matter not just difficult, but perhaps helpfully unclear. What is not unclear is what Israel does in response. They gather together in the month of December. We see that in verse 9, and it's here that we find Israel repenting in the rain. How poetic and appropriate. Heavy rain, heavy repentance. Tears and trembling mix outside in the cold, damp December weather in the Middle East where Jerusalem uh, received, uh, by comparison, more rain than most other parts of that area. In the month of December, that rain would be cold. Uh, We were told not simply that it was raining, but that it was a heavy rain. The people of Israel standing outside in a torrential rain on a cold December day. Why? Why are they standing outside covered in water? Their tears and the rain mixing together almost fittingly is because sin has wrecked the people of God and sin wrecked families. It did not simply wreck individuals, it wrecked families. Should they not be weeping? This is a horrible day. This is an unfathomable day. This is a day that crosses every pain line and threatens uh, every virtual moral category that we hold dear to our hearts. Verse 12 painfully punctuates it. It is so, the people say, we must do as you have said. And so they do as Ezra and Shechaniah have told them, but they cannot complete the task. Why? Because it's not simply raining. There's too much rain. There are too many people and there's too much sin. It really is a dark day in Israel. And so a plan is constructed to carry out their resolve, a plan that will span literally months, months needed to execute the plan to deal with Israel's sins. They will come at appointed times. It almost looks like young men coming with their fathers, the elders, their grandfathers, heads of houses, heads of fathers' houses. It's a generational line walking together that shall come all at once. The guilt of Israel's sin is more than they can bear in this season. And it brings us to our final point, faithfulness in all seasons. You agree with me, don't you? This is a hard text. It's a hard sermon. It's not an easy out on this one. But something important is said by Shechaniah, uh, something that we will not question, and that's when he says uh, remarkably well, yet there is still hope for Israel. There is hope for Israel, but I imagine you would agree with me 
Hope for Israel is not found in their plan. Hope for Israel is not found in a man-made covenant. What does God make of their plan? What does God make of Israel's sin? So much bad news here. You might wonder if there are any, is there any good news? If I said, uh, let's stop, let's finish right now, you'd be understandably quite mad with me. We can't stop here. There's no comfort offered yet. We're still, in, a, in many ways, hanging by a thread. So where is the hope to be found? I find comfort in the fact that God does not clearly demand or approve of this plan. There is no word from above, above that says, that's a good plan. This pleases God. That word is not said. More importantly, God clearly does have another plan, be with me here, to deal with Israel's sins. Another plan that does not wreck families or make victims of women and children at the expense of the sins of men. In fact, another plan that will not only not wreck families, but that will actually build the perfect one. What is God's plan? You should want to know. Where is hope for Israel to be found? God's plan is that one far more righteous and far more faithful than Ezra or Shechaniah must come. God's plan is that something other than a man-made covenant must atone for Israel's sin. God's plan is not to put foreigners away, but actually, actually his plan is to draw them near, men, women, and children. God's plan is not to break our hearts, to leave us standing cold in the rain, but to mend us, to mend our hearts with the son of his love, who brings the bright day of salvation. And where is it, beloved, that we find the real hope that points well beyond that of Shechaniah or Ezra's man-made covenant, that hope is found in Jesus. Jesus, beloved, is the answer. It is God's answer, God's plan to deal with our sins. Not Ezra's, not Shechaniah's. In fact, one of the sad things is, if you think this chapter is a bummer, Wait till it happens again in Nehemiah. What's the point? Israel doesn't, Israel's not one and done with its folly, with its idolatry, with its bad marriage choices. It keeps coming back. Like a kid bit by a snake that sees another one that's identical and does the same thing. Like a child at the beach, once stung by a Portuguese man of war on this side and sees one on that side and goes reaching. That's what sin is like. It's not simply a wrecking ball, toxic and destructive. It is deceptive and Israel keeps going back to that well. God's plan is not simply to delay dealing with sin, but to deal with it perfectly and climactically in his son and in Jesus. Jesus is not just faithful in general, but faithful to God and faithful to his people. Say it with the particular language of the text. Jesus is the one who comes not to put his wife away, his children away, but to gather them and hold them in his arms. Jesus is described ever so fittingly as the perfect husband. And what does he do? Unlike, be with me here, this point stinks. Unlike the Hebrew men of Israel who married or took these foreign women for one narrow reason, it was not love. It was lust. Jesus, the perfect husband, 
marries his bride not for lust, but for love. Not to take, but to give. And he loves his bride so much that he lays down not her life for his, as the men of Israel here do. He lays down his life for hers. And Jesus' bride, his family, the people of God, that holy race, are not made of just one ethnic tribe, but composed of men, women, and children from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That is the holy race that Jesus has gathered. That is the holy family that the blood of Jesus alone has purchased. And it raises a wonderful question. Are you in that family where there's a real plan for dealing with sins? Are you in that family where there is a genuine bond that cannot be broken even by sin itself? Have you come to Jesus with genuine repentance and faith or are you still standing outside in the rain? Trying somehow to atone for your own sins, painted into a corner by your own depravity, making really bad decisions. And for you who have come to Christ by faith, we still have questions to ask. We're not done. I know you want me to let you off the ropes. It's not time. How dangerous is lust? When you think about it, what happened to Israel here? Young men and women, old men and women, how dangerous is lust? Why again did the Israelite men marry these foreign women? You know why? Because they were hot. They were good looking. This is total indulgence of the flesh. This is forbidden fruit. And they just couldn't keep their hands to themselves. The foreign women were arguably good looking and that's why they took them. And that was the problem. That's why God gave prohibitions against this. He knew, just like Adam experienced, that things that are desirable to the eye tend to find their tentacles around the heart and as goes the heart, so goes the soul. And when you think about it, don't be too quick to condemn the Israelite men. It's not as though you and I are entirely above the lust of the flesh, the desires of the heart, the pride, the eyes. People marry for all kinds of wrong reasons. Not just lusting, but even marrying for all kinds of wrong reasons. Let me say it differently. Uh, marriage is not an answer to lust. Marriage doesn't fix it. Lust is no reason to marry. Loneliness is no, no reason to marry. If you think that getting married is going to fix your problems, that you have an idol of your own choosing. And ask anyone who's been married for longer than 30 minutes, and they'll tell you that marriage doesn't solve your problems. It replaces some, and it gives you some new ones. Right? But it doesn't make lust go away. It doesn't make loneliness go away. If God doesn't have your heart when you're single, he's not going to have it just because you got married. It doesn't work. And no one will tell you that it does work that way. What is a good reason to marry? Not just to fill a void in our heart, but to love another person, to grow spiritually with another person. One great reason for God to give that prohibition in Deuteronomy 7.3, whether you like it or not, is that Israel's heart could not grow spiritually with the foreign people of the lands that worship false gods. God knew exactly what would happen. It's why he forbids our marrying non-Christians in the New Testament because if you give your heart, if you give your heart to a non-Christian, uh, it will eventually lead your heart away. 
What is a good reason to marry? Marry in the Lord for the glory of the Lord to grow in a relationship that is centered upon the Lord. If you don't mind me saying so, at the risk of embarrassing my favorite parishioner, I married a beautiful woman. But it was her soul I fell in love with. And that was the problem in Israel's foreign marriages. They did not marry for a beautiful soul. They married for something that satisfied the eyes and the flesh. The best reason to marry is to grow together in love for God and love for one another. In a certain and almost strange way, Ezra chapter 10 is a great chapter about marriage. The hardest chapter in this book and maybe the book of the Bible as a whole could be one of the very best chapters for young and old on the subject of marrying. Why? Well, let's rephrase the question. How important is it to marry well? Why is Israel standing outside in the rain, in the cold, grieving and weeping? Because they did not marry well and they did not marry in the Lord. Not just marriage. How important is sticking closely to God and his word? If you haven't learned it by now, you are like someone uh, standing outside in a construction zone, ducking a wrecking ball, bobbing and weaving a wrecking ball the size of a car. What's the point? Sin is the wrecking ball. And not only does it ruin individuals, it wrecks and ruins families. Sin wrecks families in Ezra chapter 10. Young people, and I'm going to switch to old people here, so don't think just because you're older you're safe. Stay sensitive. But young people, can you see the importance of marrying well and only in the Lord? The Bible makes it very clear, Old Testament and New Testament, you may not marry non-Christians, you may not date non-Christians. But a marriage in the Lord, centered in the Lord, is a truly beautiful thing. This is important not just for young people, it's important for older people. Uh, some of the more difficult scenarios I've had to deal with as a pastor, as a, I'll stop there, is when older people don't marry well. They say the older men marry for one of two reasons. They're either looking for a nurse or a purse. It's a hilarious line. And it's such a sad commentary that we should have a cliche that summarizes the ill-placed motives of marriage in a generation. But you have the mirror effect on the other end. So what's the point? Again, a marriage in the Lord, centered upon the Lord, is truly a beautiful thing. If Israel had married well, you might say we wouldn't have Ezra 10 in this absolutely thorny conundrum. You would not have a wrecking ball ravaging families, destroying lives. You wouldn't be sitting there wondering, how can it be? Did God approve this? All these questions would go away if Israel had done one and one simple thing. Marry well and only in the Lord. To be married to Jesus is really the best thing of all. And in fact, it's the only marriage that lasts truly forever. So whether you are single or married, the best marriage decision you, could be, you can make is to be married to Jesus and to be fully happy in him. So I'll conclude with this. Life really is full of difficult decisions. But the best one that you and I can make is to give our hearts to God, and as a friend of the faith said, well, wholly 
and completely. For marriage to him never leave you standing out in the rain <clears throat> where your tears mix with cold water. But a marriage to him will always satisfy, last forever, and never disappoint. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, <clears throat> what shall we say about Ezra chapter 10? It really is, from our perspective, such a hard and humbling chapter. But it comes with a very beautiful ray of hope. Shechaniah was not wrong about this. There was hope for Israel, but it was not in their covenant or in their plan. It was in your covenant and your plan. There was hope for Israel that Jesus would come down from, he from heaven for the sake of his bride. There is hope for us that Jesus has come down to redeem us and that we've been not only uh, adorned with his affection, we've been washed clean from all of our sins, robed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And there's hope for us even this day because many of us uh, have so much, all of us really have life in front of us. And we pray that you would help us, O oh Lord, to give you our hearts, to not go after those snakes and jellyfish, those promises made by the evil one that earthly things will satisfy eternal desires. But rather, Lord, might we recognize that if we find our satisfaction in you and give our hearts wholly and completely to you, whether married or single, whether young or old, truly we have all we need in this life and everything else that we receive is a gracious gift from your hand to be enjoyed for your glory and your honor. And so what I do pray for our young people and our old people that they would marry well. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep Christ at the center of our relationships and that you would have our hearts for yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.